Today's passage is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went again, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we had in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rania, for reading the scripture this morning. It it is a great joy to to be back at Liberty. Um, How many of you are here in... 2005 in the church. Okay, for the four or five of you, uh, it's great to see you again. Um, When I was preparing this sermon, I noticed that there was a word fairmind in the application. And so I looked back and found out that I preached, this is a sermon I preached when I was here in 2005. You know, when you don't preach every week, you know, you've got your like three-star sermons and so um, I have to keep track of where I preach what. But in that sermon, I was very excited by the message, but sort of ran out of time. Not that you really run out of time at Liberty, but I thought I was out of time um, for some of the application. And so what I'm going to do is talk just briefly about what Paul the Apostle is trying to say and what in this passage about remembering the poor and then talk a little bit more uh, than I did last time about what it means for us as God's people. When you think about the book of Galatians, normally you think about the orthodoxy of grace that that Paul sets forth in this book. Paul went up to Jerusalem really to lay out before the apostles the gospel that he preached in order that he would be received 
also as an apostle. And he laid out his gospel, and they extended to him the right hand of fellowship to become with them an apostle and witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But something very special happened in that intervention. Paul was assigned to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. This was unprecedented in Jewish history. They should have known about it. And there were some Gentile converts. But the church had never mobilized to reach the Gentiles. And the book of Galatians was written to correct a, an era that had crept in that, was, that could be a devastating blow right to the heart of this mission. Because certain brothers had come saying that in addition to being saved by grace, you needed to be saved. You, you could be saved by keeping the law. And therefore, they were trying to impose the law again um, on the church at Galatia. And so Paul writes to safeguard this orthodoxy of grace. But you know, Galatians is also, should be remembered, because Paul is also trying to safeguard the orthodoxy of compassion, as Franz Schaeffer would, would talk about it. The apostles remind Paul to give particular attention to the ministry to the poor, as he went to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So I'd like to, to look real quickly at laying out sort of four things that, is, that are involved in what uh, Peter meant as he gave Paul this, his apostolic commission. This is Paul's version of the Great Commission. Number one, when... Peter said to Paul, we urge you to remember the poor as you preach to the Gentiles. This was really unprecedented in world history. I mean, this was a pivotal turning point in the development of the kingdom of God on earth. You know, Gentiles had no built-in instincts for helping the poor. They were given to self-indulgence, uh, to the search for affluence, for all of the kind of selfish personal peace that is so much a, a part of the, the quest for the American dream. And there was no strain of culture in the Gentile world that you could even really build on in terms of Remembering the poor. The poor, there was kind of a Gentile version of karma. That if you were poor, it was because of something you or your parents did. And to mess with that, you were really messing with the, the justice of the cosmos. It was a very different mentality than, than what we had today. And the Roman Empire had brought tremendous amount of wealth to, uh, to the ruling classes, those that owned uh, land and, and particularly who could 
be involved in international trade, because that was really the key to the, to the amassing of wealth in the Roman Empire. And so really, for the first time, this, this theme, this charge of caring for the poor was introduced into a culture that was, its DNA was just set against it in every way. It was also an apostolic charge. This was not just a, a good idea if Paul had time for it. This was not just an option he, for him to consider. Uh, Peter and the brothers had been instructed by the Lord and had worked into their ministry um, that the good works and, the, and reaching out to the needy were such part of the DNA of the New Testament church that when Paul came in and, in a sense, was accepted as an apostle, they wanted to make sure that Paul understood this and that he was on board with it. And it was part of their apostolic charge. You know, it's not that the other things were unimportant. It's, it's a little bit like if you've been on a basketball team and you're behind six or seven points and you're halfway through the second half and... The coach gets the team together and he says, guys, girls, we've got to pass the ball. Don't dribble down and shoot. Pass the ball. He doesn't mean by that you're not supposed to dribble. Doesn't mean you're not supposed to play defense. But he's saying the priority, key for us to win this game is to remember to pass the ball. So he's, he's talking about a key priority that he lays out before uh, Paul and the challenge of taking the gospel to Gentile culture. And this was also a permanent priority. This was not something to be done just because of the circumstances. It's, it says that in the text we read in verse 10, if you look at it, uh, he, he tells them to remember the poor. And the word remember uses a, a Greek form that talks about a continuing, ongoing action, not a point action. And so the tense and the, the, the grammar make it very clear that they were to continue to do what Peter and the apostles had done in Jerusalem and in the early church that was, uh, that was being founded among the, the Jewish colonies around the Mediterranean. And so they were to continue. It wasn't just because there happened to be a famine then. It wasn't because there had been a hurricane, their form of a Hurricane Katrina or a large earthquake. And they already had a free enterprise market wasn't, well, as soon as a market economy gets here, then, you know, it's gonna, things are going to take care of themselves. Um, but Jesus himself talked about the ministry to the poor as something that was going to be endemic and part of the DNA of, of the life of the church. And Paul uses, essentially, a third point, or fourth point, is that... Uh, it was a charge driven by the compassion 
of Christ himself. Paul uses this word, remember. Remember the poor. And um, he's not talking here about um, your memory being bad. He's not talking about how, you know, remembering in the past. But it's rather someone who's in a position of comfort or strength or freedom remembering those who are not, keeping them in mind to show mercy. It's a, bit, a little bit like a general remembering the troops who are on the front line, being aware of them. It is, um, it's very different. It's, um, it's a bit like the Bible uses the word remembrance to talk about the love of God. Psalm 136.23, David praises the one who remembered us in our low estate. His love endures forever. It was part of the overflow of the love of God that he would remember those who were in a low estate. When they were, they, they had no way of coming before God. They had no way of getting his attention. But God remembered them. Psalm 106, 45, he remembered his covenant and out of love he relented. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget about you. How many of us have or will cry out like the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me. When? When you come in your kingdom, when you're lifted up, when you, when I don't have access to you and I'm not quote, in your face. I'm not even in, on your radar. Remember me, Lord. And that remembering love is exactly what was revealed in the cross of Christ. God remembered mercy for us and sent his son and he died. And Paul is, receives his charge from Peter and the apostles. Have that same love that same compassion toward those who are not in your face and not on your radar and who have no voice of their own and who can't manipulate their way into your schedule or into your pocketbook or into the skills that you bear. So how did Paul do with this charge? You know that there was tremendous momentum with this value and this charge in the, in the Jewish church up to that time. And you see it worked out in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where even though there were tremendous disparities between those who were wealthy and those who were poor, there was only a little sliver of a middle class and the artisans and those who served the rich were kind of in this class. But you were either very rich or you were very poor. And there was, and there was a small middle class. But 
Luke goes out of his way when he writes the book of Acts to remind us that in the New Testament church, the Spirit of God so worked in the hearts and the minds of God's people that those who had capital assets, lands and fields, those who he had, God had really blessed financially, but they had too much. And they came and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to everyone uh, according to their need. And then in Acts 4, Paul re- I mean, Luke repeats that to show it that it actually had the impact of eliminating poverty within the New Testament church. When there were these un- incredible disparities between rich and poor. And then in Acts 6, remember that one of the big problems in the, in the society that they faced were, was the poverty of widows. And you guys are getting ready to really assess how the Lord would use you, uh, how he might be able to uh, interface your gifts and your, your wealth and your talents with those who um, are in need. But in the New Testament, this was a huge issue because widows had no way of, of earning any living. And, and so one of the ways that they eliminated poverty was that they created a system whereby uh, wealth was shared with the widows. And, and as you know, uh, those who had connections to the leaders, the, the Jerusalem widows, got on the list and it went very smoothly. And those uh, who were from out of town, got, they got shorted. And by the way, I should encourage you, um, as you begin your, your work, you're going to find that the level of wisdom and, and understanding and faith that it requires to do, to do this kind of work uh, requires uh, men and women of great wisdom and great heart and great faith and great courage. And you're going to be humbled at what you have to learn along the way. But the New Testament church rose to the occasion, and, and remember they elected the deacons, uh, to lead this so that the apostles wouldn't have to be burdened down by it. But isn't it interesting it was the apostles who were doing it? Who were distributing the food and, and the, the money to the widows? You know, in, in our culture, the pastor and the elders, they take care of the word ministry. And if there's some zealous volunteers out there who want to get involved in, in helping the poor, that's, you know, they're very happy for that to happen. But that was, not the, that was not the mindset at all in the Jerusalem church. This was, this was an apostolic priority. The, the glory of Christ, the, the integrity of their call was on the line. And, and the apostles gladly gave themselves to this, to, to, uh, this challenge. And, and, of course, 
they got into trouble because they got overwhelmed. And so God used that then to bring the deacons and, and many others uh, up that transformed the Roman Empire. And, and you're also familiar with the, um, how Paul the Apostle in, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 describes his efforts to go around the Mediterranean world and create an offering of, in today's dollars, many millions of dollars because there was a severe famine in Jerusalem. And so for the first time in history, really, the Gentile culture amassed a, a very wonderful offering, a life-giving resource, and it was carried manually to Jerusalem, laid at the feet of the apostles, and God used that to sustain the church. But more than that, to create a bright witness to the glory of Jesus Christ and to cement Jew and Gentile church. I mean, God used it in all kinds of ways. But Paul was very successful. I mean, God blessed those efforts. And it went on um, to the point where by the, by the third century, there uh, Julian the Apostate, that's what he's called, uh, became emperor of the Roman Empire. And they call him the Apostate because he was trying to, he was trying to revive the Roman gods and the Roman religion. And so Julian thought what we have to do is we have to get rid of this embarrassing circumstance where the Christians are taking care of their own poor, but you know, they're also taking care of our poor, and it's making paganism look bad. And so Julian, of course, used, he didn't want to give any money personally, so he used the resources of the Roman Empire to set up the first welfare system uh, known in the history of the world. And he did it because he was provoked to humiliation by the Christians. Now, it didn't work, and it, it wasn't too many years before uh, the, uh, the first Christian emperor uh, ascended the throne, and, and he had his own struggles. But the, the cutting edge, the power of, that defeated the Roman Empire, it was the cutting edge was not the preaching of the gospel as much as it was their ministry to the poor. Now, it was powered by the preaching of the gospel, but in terms of its impact in the culture, uh, God did a great work. You know, there are many examples down through history of how God has blessed this remembrance of the poor on the part of his people. Um, you know, slavery was ended in the Roman Empire through the influence of the Christian faith. And then it was ended again for the second time uh, through the work of Wilberforce. And, you know, Livingston, when he went to Africa, he was motivated to go into the heart of Africa to open up uh, trade routes so that... Uh, it was a strategy 
to be able to displace the slave traders. And he was actually involved in an effort to try to end the capture of, of Africans by, Arab, by other tribes and by Arab traders so they would never be sold. And so Christians, even in that situation, were working um, for the glory of God. And the whole monastic movement, a lot of the impetus for the spiritual orders was to fulfill this, um, this command of our Lord that we remember the poor. And the Moravians and the early missionary movement, when, when um, Kerry went to India, you know, many of you know that one of the greatest impacts that he had beside translating the scriptures and planning the church was he succeeded in, in moving India to, to stop the process of, of killing the widows of a deceased husband. In India, as soon as you, if your husband died, then you, you were killed and you were actually burned. I mean, it was just an awful result. And Kerry took it upon himself to lead the campaign against that. The Lord Jesus Christ has been an immense power in human history. And it has been largely the only power that has driven to that goal. It is the only cultural stream, even, which has driven powerfully to that goal. It has been usurped by Marxists in, in the early 1900s, but it didn't originate there. And in fact, they needed the Christian message so that even their twisted message of using equality as a carrot so that those who wanted to get power could get power. And they even deluded themselves because they, they did not know who man was or what his purpose in life was. And it's very interesting that when Mao Zedong formed his army to take over China, communist China, the only place he could recruit soldiers was where the Christian missionaries had done their work. And so he recruited his soldiers in the province where the Christians had already come in and taught about the need for the poor. Because, you know, in, in Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, there is not an inherent concern for the poor. And so even though it's been twisted, that stream in world history has been powered by the Lord Jesus Christ. In one day, that history is going to be told. And you're part of that. And you're one of those Gentiles that knows the Lord because those Christians in the Roman Empire and in the early church were faithful to preserve both the gospel and the orthodoxy of compassion that opened the door and opened the way for this message to grow. And you know, this stuff doesn't, is not usually planned by the top leaders in the church and then filter its way down. It can be, and sometimes it has been. But very often, 
particularly in the last few hundred years, it's an individual or that the Lord lays it upon their heart to, to get involved in uh, a need, and, and then it, it spreads within the church. Because I'm, uh, I'm the executive director of Children's Jubilee Fund, and we basically give scholarships to inner-city children so they can transfer from dysfunctional or destructive public schools into a nurturing, safe environment of a Christian school. And we're just seeing tremendous uh, change in, in these kids. But, you know, I'm not the first one to, uh, to see the need. In, uh, in the 1700s, there was a guy who owned a newspaper. His name was Robert Raines. And Robert Raines, since he ran the newspaper, he had to keep track of all the, the uh, juvenile delinquency in the community of Gloucester. And you'd have, you know how they, if you're in a small town, they list all the tickets that the cops give every, uh, every week. Well, he did that for the juvenile delinquents. And, and, the, and there were just hundreds of juvenile delinquents in their community. And and as a newspaper editor, he, had, he was aware of it. The Lord put this in his path, and he was a Christian, and it just provoked his spirit. And, Lord, what can we do? Well, the situation was that the children were working in the factories for six days, 12 hours a day. And the factory owners did not want them to learn to read and write, just like the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn to read and write in the South. But Robert Rain said, you know, they're never going to have any opportunity. They're going to be chained to that machine for their whole life if they can't read and write. And so he opened his church. He went to the minister. They opened the church on Sunday, which is the only day these kids got off. And, these, and Sunday is when all the tickets were given because all these kids got into trouble. They were just sort of running wild through the town. And so they opened the churches, and they began to teach them to read. And, of course, they started with, you know what, the Bible. God honored that in such a tremendous way that not only did these children learn to read and to write and to converse, but they were given the gospel. And they were discipled, and they, became, and they were converted. You may have heard of the Sunday school movement, and that's how it started. And it spread to the slums of England, and to Manchester, and to Birmingham, and many of the other uh, ugly ghettos that the Industrial Revolution had created. And it swept through the working class, in, in Britain. And literally hundreds of thousands came to Christ, got an education, were able to break the slavery that was being imposed by the industrialists at that time. Now, when it came to America, um, we already had Christian schools. They were called public schools. And they had shut the Catholics out because they didn't like Catholics. So they made them start their own schools. But the, the regular public schools were, were Christian. 
And so they said, well, we don't need this in America. We already learned our lesson. And so they sent them out. The Sunday school movement went out to the Indians. Okay, and that's why it never had an impact here. But you know, when the Marxists showed up in England at, at the late 1800s, to, and, you know, Marxism was having a huge impact all over the world. They could not convert the working class of Britain to Marxism because there were too many Christians in the working, among the working people. And ten years later, Robert Raines writes that there were a hundred juvenile convictions when he started in, in, their, in a year in Gloucester, England, when he started the program, ten years later, the entire year, there was one juvenile convicted of a crime. And I say that because this is, this is one brother who was put by the Lord in a particular place. And, you know, and that's how this stuff starts. Sadly, however, you know, we've, we've lost the priority of this in our churches. The Great Commission involves the word ministry, not the deed ministry. But it was clearly part of what the New Testament church was about. You know, there are a lot of temptations for why this change happened. Uh, we saw many people move into the middle class without the help of the church, didn't we? Uh, the free market has done wonders, both here in China, in Asia, at um, creating wealth which working people can participate in. And so we sort of stopped believing that we had to do anything. And we were told by our economists that actually, you know, you just need to let the free market work. And it'll take care of your problems. And they, and as you know, we, we've raised that to ludicrous levels of gullibility in, in our own culture. But Christ's commandment still stands. And the, and the poor are there. They're invisible. And the free market has no clue how to reach out. We had a second problem, and that was in the early 1900s. Um, people began to, to feel that the, or believe that the Christian faith was not rationally and scientifically defensible, especially after uh, Darwin's writings. And so... There, there arose a movement to try to save Christianity by removing uh, belief in Christ and just keeping the part about helping the poor. They thought, well, you know, we can build a religion around that. And so you had what was called the social gospel. And it essentially said, you don't need the gospel to do this. Um, people are inherently, they, that's what they want to do. They want to help the poor, they will do it. And so there was great uh, fanfare um, as all the major seminaries in our country stopped teaching the future 
uh, pastors of our nation the gospel. But the, all they emphasized was we've got to help the poor. Well, you know what happened is that it gave the pastor something to talk about on Sunday, but nothing ever happened. And the evangelicals were so wounded by this that they all retreated from academia. They retreated from seminary training, and they started Bible colleges. You know, just little ridiculous places out in the, out in the cornfield. And, and my family down south was involved in starting one of those, at Columbia Bible College. But, um, and, so they, and so they just, well, we'll just train missionaries, keep them out of college, whatever you do. Train them to evangelize, send them out. Well, some of these folks also, but we're concerned for the poor. And these missionaries came back and they began to talk about the needs around the world. And so uh, World Vision got started. Compassion International, Bread for the World, the Mennonite Central Committee, Salvation Army. And while the, the churches that had lost the gospel were preaching it, God's people, even though it was not fully recognized, were doing it at least overseas. I, I think we were still a little bit in the dark from all the teaching we got about, the, about what free markets could do. That, and we were so wounded by losing so many churches and so many seminaries to, to unbelief that we did retreat. But, you know, it's those organizations that were started, these pitiful little small unrespected organizations, that are now the largest and most powerful organizations in the world and making the biggest difference. We can thank the Lord Jesus Christ. He is active. He has found a way to continue that work. He is still king. And in the meantime, th this whole movement to remove the gospel from the gospel has completely lost credibility. And now the biggest seminaries are all evangelical. Most scholars are now evangelicals, most biblical scholars. And, and God is beginning to renew the passion for this charge that Peter gave to Paul so many years ago. Now, you might be discouraged at the enormity of the task. But that is where faith state steps out into the, into the Jordan River. And God has provided where that faith is there. Um, God has used it in a powerful way. And you need to look, where has God placed me so that I can show mercy? He's placed you in your situation. He's placed this church here in 2010 for what he wants to do through the congregation and through every one of you who are here. How are we doing on... Well, when do you all usually end? Five minutes? Okay. I'm, uh, I'm done. But... <clears throat> It, it, it happened to me when I tried to be a pastor in West Philly. And let me just 
tell you, um, I did 70 weddings in 10 years, okay, because my church was all 20-something, okay, all new converts, didn't know their right hand from the left, didn't need counseling, and all of a sudden they started having babies, and before I knew it, we had school-age kids. We went to the local school. It was horrible. So we ended up starting a Christian school. Not because we thought everybody would, should go there, but it was the only place our kids could learn and they could be discipled. And, and the neighborhood just stormed the school. Everybody wanted their child in that school. And we realized that so many urban kids, like 71% of our poor urban children are dropping out of high school. And so we started Spruce Hill. And then to keep the school going, we had to charge so much tuition that the neighbors couldn't get in. And so God used that to provoke myself and some others to begin the Children's Jubilee Fund, which provides the scholarships for low-income families so their kids will not be lost. You know... I, I backed into this. And God has now privileged me to work full-time in this ministry. It's just, it's mind-blowing. And I just thank the Lord so much for it. And I, I just tell that story to encourage each of you who are here um, that this charge that Paul gave, that uh, Paul received from Peter, is something that's true for you as well. And God is asking you to go and to... Um, to remember the poor. At New Life, our giving to the poor has gone from 7,000 to 90,000 in five years because this message has been preached. I mean, money's coming out that would never be put into the plate for other purposes. And, and I, God has positioned your church in a wonderful way. And he's given you a heart for this, I know. I know your leaders. And... So I thank you for it. I exhort you to remember that this is also part of the gospel. And I exhort you to remember the poor. And I will pray that you will also be very eager to do it. So thank you for this time to share with you this morning. And I'll be praying for you.